All right, so we're in 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, and uh, here in chapter 2 of this second letter, Peter warns us about the false teachers that will be among the church, and unfortunately, how popular they will be among the people. Uh, but then he says, rest assured, they will be judged. And uh, Peter references three different occasions in the past when God executed his judgment on the ungodly. First is this group of angels that are currently chained up in hell waiting for their final judgment. Then he mentions the ancient world that God judged with the worldwide flood. And thirdly, he mentions the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. And uh, so this is a, a very heavy chapter, but thankfully in the middle, along with this warning for the unrighteous, Peter offers uh, some encouragement for those of us that are righteous, not self-righteous, but those of us that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And in doing so, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us, right? His righteousness has been credited to our accounts. And so Peter offers a couple of examples of God rescuing the righteous out of his judgment. He mentions Noah and Noah's family, and then he mentions Lot, who was rescued along with two of his daughters out of God's judgment. And so Peter goes on to describe these false teachers and how deceptive they are, and he lists some tactics they use in order to draw people to themselves. And then uh, Peter closes this chapter with a severe warning uh, that will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, a warning for those that have come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and then later turning back and being overcome by the world. And Peter says it would have been better for them if they had never come to know Jesus in the first place. And so let's jump in right here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so Peter says, just like in the past, you know, during the Old Testament times, there were always false prophets. And, and there was kind of two types. If you remember, there's prophets of false gods, like uh, the fake gods, like prophets of Baal. And then there were those that claimed to be prophets of the true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They claimed to be speaking on behalf of God, but they were not. And uh, in either case, these false prophets, they were leading people away from the true and living God. And Peter says this is nothing new. It's been a tactic of the enemy from the very beginning. We even see it right in the Garden of Eden with Lucifer. I mean, we could even call him the very first false prophet himself. You remember he was bringing into question what God had said. He was twisting what God had said, and then he was adding his own take on what God really meant by what he said, uh, deceiving Eve. So Peter points out, that the enemy has been doing this throughout history with the children of Israel, and he was doing it right then, at this time, uh, in these very early years of the church. And Peter says he's going to continue to do it throughout church history. And every single one of us, we've just by watching the news, you can confirm that Peter was right. There's false teachers out there. And, uh, and of course, he was right. God, God uh, was speaking through Peter, right? God's never wrong. So just as there was false prophets in the past, Peter says there will be false teachers among you who will secretly, or we can say stealthily, bring in destructive heresies. 
And it's all based on deception. Rarely do they, you know, just throw the Bible out the window. Uh, that would just raise too many flags with people, right? So usually they say, oh, yeah, the Bible's good, but this other book, you know, the Book of Mormon, let's say, for instance, it's even better, you know? No, it doesn't negate the Bible, but it just expounds upon the Bible. It, you know, it brings a new revelation of God to us. And the Bible talks about heaven as this active, functioning kingdom of God, but the Book of Mormon explains it further. And you see, for a man, if he follows the Book of Mormon properly, when he dies, he will become the God of his own planet, just like the true and living God is the God of this planet. And then this man will be able to call his wife or wives out of the grave to join him. And these wives will forever produce the spirit babies that will populate their own planet, eternally pregnant. Obviously, every woman's dream come true, right? And, uh, and that's why it's so important for a warm Mormon woman to have a good Mormon husband, because if she doesn't, there's no one to call her out of the grave. Hence the need to double and triple up sometimes. Apparently, there's just not enough good Mormon men out there. And that's one of the flaws in the enemy's tactic uh, with these works-based false religions. Well, the problem is they require a lot of work. And sometimes guys tend to be a little lazy. You know, do I really want to be the god of my own planet? I mean, it sounds like a lot of work to me. I think I'll just watch the football game and make sure I got a good comfortable coffin to relax in forever or whatever. And, of course, they don't tell you any of this craziness the first day you visit the Mormon church. They slowly and stealthily bring in these destructive heresies, but that is the true, their true beliefs. Peter says, even denying the master who bought them. So using the same example of the Mormons, they're also called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny that Jesus... God the Son is one with God the Father and one with God the Spirit. We call it the Trinity. Jesus who bought them, who purchased us with his own blood, and then they deny who he really is. They say that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, they're created sons of God. And listen, Peter is very, very clear. He said, in doing this, they are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The Mormons, the JWs, they're fairly easy for us to identify because they both deny the deity of Jesus. They both say that Jesus is a God with a small g, but he's not one with the true and living God. But what about all these other denominations and pastors and preachers that, that they do believe the Trinity, but they push uh, prosperity preaching? Or they're the motivational type preachers with their emotional pep talks, you know, always leaving you very warm and fuzzy. Uh, or what about these whole denominations negating God's word in order to fit people's life, sinful lifestyles? You know, Romans chapter 1 doesn't just say homosexual, it describes it. Men leaving their natural desire, men with men, women with women. I guess these denominations, they just skip that chapter, right? And, and they're going to have to skip this chapter we're studying as well. And, it, you know, it's not that surprising to me that these false teachers surface I mean, there's always one nut in the bunch, right? But what's surprising is the amount of people that follow them, that are deceived by, uh, by what they offer. Second Peter ver chapter 2, verse 2, he says, And many, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, 
They will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. You know, many people will follow their sensuality, their immoral ways. And what's their motive? Why are they leading these people astray? It says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Greed is their motivation, and it, and it works out perfectly because they're playing to people's sinful desires. So if the pastor is healthy, wealthy, and wise, then that's what the people want to attain to. But listen, if you're looking to get rich, you definitely don't want to be following my example. I gave up a, a cush six-figure career uh, to do this. And, and listen, God has been faithful, and I've not gone hungry, but those false teachers, they don't want to tell you that. They want to say it's all about here and now. And Peter assures us that these false teachers, they will be getting what's due to them. And he cites a few examples of God's judgment in the past. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So Peter's first example is this group of angels that are currently chained up in gloomy darkness. And the word used for hell here is Tartarus, which is believed to be this section of hell that was reserved just for these angels. And so what exactly did these angels do to deserve this judgment? We're told here that they sinned, that they rebelled against God. But so did all the fallen angels, right? So why is this particular group currently restrained in chains? Well, many believe that these are the same angels that are talked about in the book of Jude and that it refers to what happened in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they procreated with them somehow. And uh, many believe that these sons of God were the fallen, these fallen angelic beings, and somehow they're able to procreate with human women. We don't know how all that, the logistics of that. And many believe this is where these fables of the Greek and Roman gods come from. You know, these angelic beings being the, god, the gods with a small g, you know, like uh, Zeus and Hermes and all that. And then their offspring, being half human, they equate to the demigods like Hercules and those that are half, supposed to be half god and half human. And so it's really all super interesting stuff. And, and you could go on, you know, for weeks probably talking about that or longer. But it's really not what God is attempting to communicate to us through this letter that he wrote to us. The intent of this letter is really not to teach us about these angelic beings. The intent of this letter is to teach us about God and his justice and his capacity for judgment as well as his capacity for mercy and grace. And so Peter's point is this. He says, God has judged angelic beings, so no one is too high for God's judgment. He says, God has judged the ancient world before they received the law of God. And in doing so, God judged the entire population of the world, save Noah and his family. Just eight people out of the entire world were saved. You know, one of the lies of the enemy is he, he tries to get us to compare ourselves to someone that we think is more unrighteous than ourselves. Because, you know, we'll admit that, oh, well, we're not perfect, but we're nowhere near the sinner that Charles Manson is or whatever, whoever, some serial killer. 
what God is revealing to us here is that he does not grade on a curve. He doesn't take the top percentage of unrighteous people, bring them into heaven, and then everyone below that the cut line goes to hell. If the whole world is unrighteous, then the whole world's judged. That's what he did with, in the days of Noah. His third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were prosperous cities. And you know, the name it and claim it uh, preachers, they always equate physical prosperity with God's blessing, which is simply not the case. God brought judgment down on these prosperous cities because of their wickedness and unrighteousness. Most of, the, most of the time we equate the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to their sexual perversion. But listen to what God tells us through his prophet Ezekiel. He says in Ezekiel 16 verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did, not, did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. The overwhelming sin of Sodom was pride. What does the homosexual community of America call their annual parade? It's the pride parade, right? You see, it's one level of sin to succumb to temptation and commit any kind of sexual immorality, whether it be premarital sex or adultery or homosexuality. It's all sexual sin. Uh, but it's brought to a whole new level when we are proud of that sin. You know, a repentant heart is ashamed of the sin. You know you messed up. We're sorry. We regret sinning in that way. And that leads us to asking God to forgive us for that sin. And that is an attitude of humility, right? Which enables God to pour out his grace into our lives. God gives grace to the humble. And uh, this amazing resource of God's grace, this wonderful supply of God's power, which helps us to take on God's divine nature and walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. But the opposite is taking this attitude of pride. It's like saying, hey, you're darn right I committed adultery or whatever. You know, hey, I know I'm a married man, but I have these desires in me to have relationships with other people. Why would God put these desires in me and then tell me it's wrong to act on them? Obviously, that's just who I am, and so that's what I'm going to do, and you just better accept it and get over it. And that's the attitude people have. And, and if that's not giving God the middle finger, I don't know what is. I mean, big surprise, God is opposed to the proud. You know, really, no kidding. Because they're opposed to him. Did you notice it wasn't just pride concerning sexual sin. Their pride, it extended to all of these areas. They had excess of food, and they had prosperous ease. They're neglecting the poor and needy. They're haughty, not like a pretty girl. The haughty with the G-H, arrogant, conceited. I suppose that could be one and the same. Sometimes pretty girls are arrogant and conceited. But anyway, does this description of the city of Sodom, does it sound familiar to anybody else? I mean, we see it kind of going on in America here. Well, back to Peter's point. Because God did not spare these angels, because God did not spare the ancient world, because God did not spare these prosperous, prideful cities, God will not spare the ungodly in the church, including these false teachers either. He says in verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So now Peter makes the opposite conclusion. Because God rescued Noah and his family, because God rescued Lot and his two daughters, we know that God knows how to rescue the godly out of trials, out of temptations. In fact, God promises us that he will provide a way of escape for us, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 10.13, and most of us know this verse, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You ever think that God maybe gives us just way too much credit sometimes, <laughs> not, not above our ability? I like how the Amplified puts this, for no temptation, no trial regarding entice, regarded as enticing to sin, no matter how it comes or where it leads, has overtaken you and laid hold on you that is not common to man, that is, no temptation or trial has come to you that is beyond human resistance and that is not adjusted and adapted and belonging to human experience and such as man can bear. But God is faithful to his word and to his compassionate nature and he can be trusted not to let you be tempted and tried and assayed beyond your ability and strength of resistance and power to endure. But with the temptation, he will always also provide the way out, the means of escape to a landing place, that you may be capable and strong and powerful to bear up under it patiently. Make no mistake, God knows how to rescue us. Just let me paraphrase this. No matter what we're going through, God is standing there right next to us with his hand extended, just waiting for us to grab hold. Our part, we're ju we just have to decide whether or not we're going to grab his hand. It's as simple as that. Verse 9, then the, Lord knows how to, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, like we just talked about, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And I just have a quote here to help explain this section. False teachers were doing things even angels would not do, namely slander such beings. One might expect stronger and more powerful beings, good angels, to criticize less powerful beings, fallen angels, but that is simply not allowed in the presence of the Lord, according to Jude 8 and 9. Yet so great was the pride of these slanderers that it knew no bounds in their attack on all who disagreed with their teachings. Even so, they were totally ignorant of the very things they blasphemed. And that's from John Wolver. Verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as, they as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure 
to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Hey, we're going to have a public parade in the middle of the day and celebrate our sin. I mean, that's what's happening in America here. The reveling in their sin in the daytime. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, Peter calls them, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you remember, Balaam was willing to go against God's will for the right price. And I don't know if you remember the story. The king of Moab wanted to hire Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And God told him, he went to prayed about it, and God said, no. Well, then the king came back and upped the price. So Balaam takes it back to God, like God's going to change his mind because you're going to get more money out of this? Like God's saying, well, wow, that's quite an offer, Balaam. You know, that's more money than I could ever pay you. I guess you might as well go ahead and do it. Instead of praying for God to allow you to sin against him so you can make some money, here's a novel idea. Why not pray for God to give you an opportunity to earn money in an honest way? Like, hello, right? Praying in accordance to God's will, not praying against God's will. I mean, it's genius, right? It's so simple. Could you imagine having to be straightened out by a donkey? I mean, the donkey's like, and they call me stubborn. Look at this guy. This angel is standing here ready to lop his head off with a sword, and this guy's whipping me to drive him into it. Is not God so patient and long-suffering with us? And, and Peter comes to that same conclusion, and he's going to talk about it, about God's loving patience in chapter 3 of this letter. Verse 17, These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloomy, utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh of those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes us, that's, that's where we're enslaved to. These false teachers, they're compared to waterless springs or a mist driven by a storm. In both cases, there's an expectation of a benefit or a blessing. Right? You're, you're expecting a cool drink from the spring or a nice rain shower from the clouds. But they're so deceptive because they are utterly empty of what they claim to offer. They promise people freedom while they themselves are enslaved to sin. There's no freedom in twisting God's word to fit your lifestyle. And it's so tragic to see this trending in our society. People going from church to church until they find a, a false teacher that twists the Word of God to fit their lifestyle. And these people are deceived into thinking, oh, that they've finally found freedom, only to be enslaved in their sinful desires all the more. It's tragic. You know, Peter points out that whatever it is that controls you, you are a slave to it. That desire, that aspiration, that longing, that is your master. Listen, there's a false teacher out there that will 
encourage you to embrace it, whatever it is. It's probably not going to take a lifelong endeavor to find them either. You probably a 15-second search on the Internet will show you exactly what churches are okay with whatever particular behavior or lifestyle you want to maintain. And just like with Balaam, God might just say, fine, you know, go ahead if you're going to do it anyway. And then he might send an angel to lop off your unwise head, you know, I don't know, like he did with Balaam. Might be start, smart to start traveling with a donkey to protect you. Or, here's a novel idea. Instead of trying to find a church that twists God's word to fit your lifestyle, what if you use the power of God's word to adjust your lifestyle to fit the will of God, right? I know, it's genius, right? It's so simple. It's like using a Toyota repair manual to work on a Toyota. Who would ever come up with that? It's just, so, it's just simplistic truths of God's word here. Verse 20, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. And this right here, this is a super heavy section of scripture, and it's a warning. And, you know, there is some debate on who he is speaking about, who they are. The verse says, they that have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some say that they are the false teachers. Some say that they are the followers of the false teachers. Some say that it's both. It's the teachers and the followers. And I don't see why it wouldn't be applied to both. And here, once again, it's another opportunity to get into a very interesting discussion uh, that we can go on forever, but then miss the point that God is presenting through Peter here. You know, the immediate thought that comes to mind is this. Is God saying that a true believer can lose his salvation? And, you know, one side of the argument that they'll say, well, that's exactly what God is saying right here. The person came to know Jesus, then he rejected Jesus, went back to the ways of the world, the other side of the argument, they would say, oh, no, no, no. This person just thought they were saved, but they really weren't saved. So they didn't lose their salvation. They were never really saved in the first place. They just thought they were. Uh, and there are scriptures that support both sides of this. Theologians have been arguing this for 2,000 years now. There's this huge division in the church among this one thought of once saved, always saved, or you can lose your salvation. But listen, it's as simple as this. Let's just run through both scenarios. See how it works out for this guy. A person is truly saved in like this, and then he rejects Jesus for the ways of the world, and now his condemnation is greater than if he had not come to know Jesus in the first place. That's bad. Not good. Now we have the person that thinks they are truly saved, but they're not truly saved, and they reject Jesus, and they turn back to the world, and his condemnation is greater than if he had known, not come to know Jesus in the first place. So, kind of sounds like the end result's exactly the same, either way you slice it, right? Stinks to be that guy, right? Do you think he cares which theologian was right? This guy's burning in hell either way. doesn't matter which uh, philosophy was right. So here's a novel idea, how we can just avoid all this. Whether you really know Jesus, or you just think you really know Jesus, 
don't reject Jesus and turn back to the ways of the world. And then you will, your last state won't be worse than the first, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. And if you don't, do, if you think you really know Jesus and you don't reject him and you don't go back to the ways of the world, then you know Jesus. And, uh, and so, again, it's just a very simple thought. It's, uh, and I'm thinking it's genius, right? And it made me think of, I think we have the makings of a, of a Super Bowl commercial here. Remember the but real Christians of genius. Remember the real men of genius? And, uh, and so just some points here that just this profound but super simple points. When we're experiencing a difficult time, grab a hold of the Lord's hand. He's got it there. He's got that way of escape. He's ready for us. Just take his hand and let him take you through it as he promises to. The second point, pray in accordance to God's will. Don't ask God to allow you to do something that goes against his nature and against what he wants to do. Pray with God's will. Pray for what he wants to do and what his nature calls for. Obviously, it's going to work out so much better. It's very simple. Don't be like Balaam. And then the next one, instead of trying to find a church that twists God's or a teacher to twist God's word to fit your lifestyle, what if you use the power of God's word to adjust your lifestyle to fit the, God of wor to fit the will of God? I mean, that's what his word is for. That's why it's powerful. And the fourth one, don't reject Jesus and turn back to the ways of the world. I mean, you gave up the ways of the world, and we're glad we gave those things up. Why would we ever want to go back to that filth, back to, like you said, a dog eating vomit, back to a, a pig rolling in the mud? We're, God rescued us out of that stuff. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for being our God, and thank you for rescuing us out of the mire, out of the mud, Lord, rescuing us from being a dog that returns to its vomit, Lord. And I just ask that you would help each one of us, that you would strengthen us, Lord, in our walk with you, Lord, that you would help us to not get uh, deceived by false teachers out there, uh, Lord, and we just lift up those that are, are sitting under false teachers. Right now, certainly, there are false teachers speaking uh, from, from pulpits at this very moment, and they've I've, people listening, Lord, and I just ask that you would, just like you took a hold of that donkey and forced him to speak, that you would just force your truth to come out of these false teachers' mouths, that you would just uh, remove the deceptive scales off the eyes of the people that are sitting under them, and they would just see your truth in your word, Lord, that they would go home, they would be like, like the Bereans that you praised and study the word and see if what this teacher is teaching lines up with your word, Lord, and that they would know that when it doesn't, that, that they, need to, they need to change what they're doing. So, Lord, we ask that you would uh, just impart your wisdom uh, on each and every one of these people and each and every one of us, Lord. Help us to grow in you. Help us not to be caught by the enemy and uh, entrapped by his uh, deceptiveness, Lord. He's so very, very good at what he does. He's been doing it a long time, Lord. Help us to, to see uh, what he's doing and just avoid it by your strength and by your power. And so we ask for your blessing on each and every person here, Lord, as we go out uh, this week, that you protect us, that you'd watch over us, help us to stand strong in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
we praise you. We serve a living God, God that cares, God that sees, God that loves us. Lord, as we go on into fellowship today, I pray that you just be working in our hearts, Lord, to just be convicted of the message that was preached today, Lord. We all have something, Lord, that needs to be expunged, Lord. So do that heart surgery in us. And as we fellowship one another, we uphold and encourage and edify one another, Lord, in the unity of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to learn more about you, to love you more, to serve you more, and to be more transformed, to be like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.